This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, Arnie Moores. He's going to be talking about, are some species more equal than others? Arnie is a professor of biodiversity, phylogeny, and evolution with Simon Fraser University Department of Biological Sciences. Please welcome Arnie to our talk today. Thank you. Thanks. So thank you very much. Um, so what I say at the beginning of my classes, at the beginning of term, is that if you're in the wrong room, you can leave now. So Ian actually had another title on the website, <clears throat> but Ian uh, invited me based on an article that we had uh, written about endangered species and how some may be more important um, than others. So this is the uh, topic. Uh, are some species more equal than others? And I don't know if... I'm going to be using the slide, so if you can't see at the end there, you might want to squeeze in. I don't know if everyone can see. Um, <clears throat> I want to introduce you to this guy first. So this frog is from Australia. It's called the gastric brooding frog. Has anyone heard of it? You've heard of the gastric brooding frog? So it's famous because the, f the female, after fertilization, so she lays the eggs, the male fertilizes them, she eats them, takes them into her tummy, and turns off all of her stomach, start, starves, turns off everything that stomachs normally do, and the babies grow and are born inside her tummy, and then they pop out. <clears throat> there are two species, that, there are only two species in the world that can do this, two of these guys, uh, and they're both extinct. <clears throat> so, and they went extinct in the 1980s. And there, there is, in fact, this fellow, Michael Tyler, I think, is part of a group that's actually trying to... Uh, <coughs> clone them, bring them back from cells that they stored in a freezer. So what's the context for this, this talk? Are some species more equal than others? Well, it goes back a long, long way for me. Way back to 1980, there was a New York Times article, uh, front, page, uh, front page of the second section, species, uh, scientists urge triage for species believed endangered. And the idea, we, even back then, was that there, we have only so many resources we have many species that are endangered. If we believe that we should be conserving species, how do we choose where to put our money? And the, the quote from that article in 1980, how do we weigh the snail darter, which is a little fish, uh, against the black-footed ferret, which is a little mammal, or the Everglades kite, which is, an, which is a bird, against the whooping crane, which is another bird, right? So if all of these species are at risk of, of being lost, where do we put our money? Um, that argument, that debate, goes on and on and on. So it was in 1980, and there's a, here's an article from the National Post in Canada from 2015. Triage in the wild, is it time to choose which species live and which die out? And the, one of the many quotes we, I could have taken from this uh, article is the following, because we're going to come back to this. While traditionalists, and we'll see whether you guys are traditionalists or not, bristle against betraying conservation's key tenant that every species, from polar bears to pygmy pocket moss, shares the right to exist. Others, and I'm quoted in this article as being one of the others, say conservation efforts have been valuing certain species over others in a hodgepodge fashion forever, right? That we're not being rational in the way that we allocate resources. And we certainly do allocate resources, sometimes a lot of resources. So the most 
probably the, the poster child is the California condor. They were all taken, there were only very few uh, individuals left. They were, they were taken from the wild uh, in the late 60s, started a breeding program, and it's cost roughly, it's hard to find really good numbers, about $50 million to breed this bird, release it, inoculate it, go back, re-catch it, train them, do everything they've done. Closer to home, we have spent approximately $12 million on the Vancouver Island marmot. Uh, and the black-footed ferret, also, that's Canadian dollars, the black-footed ferret, which was also a bunch were taken from the wild, uh, taken to captive breeding, and then they've been released now, both in Saskatchewan and Manitoba and in the States, and r roughly $25 million. So we're talking quite a bit of money. Uh, those are what you, we would call good species, as you know. We also spend lots of money even on particular populations of species, and just, this came out just last year, the BC government uh, earmarked $27 million to help manage caribou populations just in BC. Right? They range all over Canada. We've got different herds, and there's at least 27. That's just the BC government. Let's put that money in. So we have two, I think, really important questions. And these are kind of a combo of philosophy, sociology, and science that I think are relevant for and trying to answer the question whether some species are more important. And I've color-coded them, so I don't know if, you, I don't think people are green, yellow, blind, but uh, through the talk, hopefully I've done it properly, um, we can ask the question, do all species have some value? And you might have a feeling about that. And then do some species have extra value on top of that, right? And those are the two questions that we're going to discuss uh, for the rest of the talk, okay? Everyone, that's the, everyone's clear on, the, on where we're going, why we're here? So if you want to talk about climate change, you can, you can, you can go now. Uh, I, I'm happy to talk about climate change if you want, uh, but it's not in the talk. So we're going to dive right into to the philosophy. It turns out, so I'm, not a, I'm a biologist, clearly. I'm not, but there is an organization, just like the IPCCC, the, the, the climate change, uh, the UN-sponsored climate change organization that gathers all the science together and tells you, you know, what a pickle that we're in. There is a much younger, much younger, parallel organization with, and that, the acronym IPBES, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, and they've been spending, I know, they've been spending lots of time trying to figure out why we should spend money on biodiversity. And they have, this is my first pass at trying to organize their thinking for myself. They have come up with sort of three classes of value or three classes of argument for the value of biodiversity. They talk about intrinsic value. They, they, not, that, not just them. I mean, they're organizing the idea of intrinsic value of biodiversity against instrumental. So that's sort of the other side, uh, uh, value of biodiversity. And we'll, we'll unpack these. And recently, they have added what is, uh, we won't even get to this, but a, a, a potentially useful or potentially obfuscating idea of the relational value of biodiversity. All three of these can be um, considered in either green or yellow. So we can talk about whether species, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move, and this, is gonna, this may become important, I'm going to move between biodiversity uh, and species, and, I, and I'm sure we'll have some discussion about species uh, afterwards, where all species have some inherent right to exist uh, versus only some species are worthy of obligation, right? But not because of, 
not because of anything they do for us, just because of the way that they are. That was their intrinsic value. We can talk about this is what, what, what most people think about, is that all biodiversity somehow offers benefits to people, right? So it's, it's, it's something that we get from them. They're all equally good, and therefore we should be conserving all of them versus only some bits are important, some bits of biodiversity, some species. And these are the ones that uh, are, are probably the easiest to, to deal with. And then there's this, I would say, and I'll say right away that this, this part here, which is not about species, but about species, place, and people, which is called relational value, the, the main proponent of this idea at the IPBES is Kai Chan, who's a professor at UBC. So if you're interested in following up on this third, then I, this third idea, um, and it's brand new, like December 2018 is when the big papers came out. Like we're, we're talking very new. I would suggest you invite him and he can tell you a, little bit, a lot more about relational value. Okay, so we're actually gonna start here. So we're gonna start from the easiest, sort of the most, the, the clearest probably to uh, the foggiest. Some species are useful to us. Yeah, no kidding. Right? Clearly, some species are useful to us. Some species in the wild give us something that we that makes us, you know, healthier and stronger. So the species that we eat, the species that we use for, for clothing, the species that are the source of medication, etc., have instrumental value, specific species. That is completely obvious. Most people don't like that as an argument for conservation. Right? It's not particularly helpful because there are actually very few of these species. Right? We're talking hundreds, maybe, maybe, maybe in the low thousand. And the interesting thing, of course, <clears throat> because it's instrumental value, is that as we expand our knowledge, we need fewer and fewer of those. We can substitute. Right? Very soon, we're, we're very, very soon, we're all going to be eating meat that's grown in a factory. Right? Which means that we don't need anything that gives us meat anymore. They no longer have any value to us from a purely instrumental point of view. Mo uh, there's a very common misconception that we get all our medicines from nature, right? There's, and there's these, these classic uh, um, studies that suggested that, you know, some large proportion of all the medicines we get actually derive from that are, are actually natural products. Well, it turns out that those studies were based on sort of the dollar value, and it was only like three of them, but because we all, because it's aspirin, we all use them, it sounded like 90% of, of medicine comes from nature when it's fact one, we just, we all use it. And I've been to a recently, a, a recent talk, <coughs> recent few years ago, where they invited chemists to talk about this, this, this issue of, of, you know, useful products from nature, and these very senior chemists said, I have enough to do with a single worm for the rest of my life, and there's enough inside that worm that's probably bioactive that, I, that we can get medicine. And you cannot tell me that some random unknown species in the Amazon is worth more. And so they're like, this is, this is a, a rhetorical argument that we need biodiversity for medicine, doesn't hold. And the idea being that, and we need fewer and fewer because with synthetic biology, et cetera, et cetera. The idea about instrumental value generally is that it's substitutable, right? That it's not, it's not particular. You can always, you, the, as we progress, we will find other ways to get what we might get from their species, right? So it's not a very uh, big hook to hang your hat on if you want to talk about preserving biology. Okay, so that's, the, that's sort of like n not particularly helpful. How about this idea that all biodiversity is important, right? Irrespective of which species. Important to us in, in a, in, because of use. This is very common. This is what uh, most of my students think before they, they, they take 
the, uh, my course in biodiversity. In order to, so now we have to do a, a parenthesis. In order to answer this question, we have to have a clear conception of what biodiversity is. And it's not as easy as you might think. Because the word arose in the context of worry about extinction. And so it immediately took on the, uh, the it, it became a value by definition. We're like, oh, we're losing biodiversity. That's bad. Therefore, biodiversity must be good. So you have to step back from that. Now, this is in the 80s with E.O. Wilson. You have to step back from that and ask, well, what, what do we mean when we say biodiversity? So it arose in the context of concerns for the loss of the natural world, so it's a, which makes it a social construct. Not very helpful if you want to ask the question whether it has value, because it, it, uh, the, the answer is implied in the definition. Um, it's, a lot of people talk about biodiversity as just life. It's, just, it's synonymous with uh, That's OK if that's the way you want to talk about it, but again, not very helpful if you want to ask whether more is better than less, i.e., should we be worried about extinction? So the, to my mind, you may disagree, but you're not allowed to say that until after the talk, the most useful definition of biodiversity is just the number of kinds within some category where that category is a natural category. So that, and the most common one that you would be uh, familiar with is the number of species, the, the category of species, and the number would be the number of species, number of different species, in a place or globally, right? That's the most common, it's species richness. That's the most common measure of biodiversity. Um, and according to, and I'll give you a reading list at the end, but according to uh, environmental philosophers, it's also the best way to think about it if you want to talk about value, because then you can ask whether more species are better than fewer species. You can immediately ask, well, if I add one more, do I, what do I get in return? Or if I lose one, what do I lose? <clears throat> In order to understand, so this is part, still part of the parenthesis, in order to, to, uh, to um, be able to talk about value of biodiversity instrumentally, we have to worry about something called a category mistake. So you guys, this is like, you all know what a category mistake is, so this is good. So I've pitched the, I've pitched the talk at the right level, which is good. A category mistake is just an error of reason, a philosophical error of reasoning where you think, in broadest terms, you think you're talking about something, but you're actually talking about something else. Uh, a common form of this mistake is when you ascribe a property, you, you say this thing has, does this, has this, when it cannot, usually because you're talking about subsets of it. And that, um, a common example I, that, I mean, that I came up with is this is, they call it, they call it the fallacy of composition, where you, you say, well, individuals have this property, therefore the collection also has the property. So we can feel joy, but humans can't feel joy. Individuals can feel joy or sorrow, but you can't talk about homo sapiens feelings, right? So the collective can't, doesn't have the property of the individual. That's important because if biodiversity is the number of kinds, more versus fewer, then, you, then you're not talking about the species themselves. You can't talk about the value of the species. You have to talk about the value of the number, big versus small. So there's a couple of things that, that sort of flow from this idea of biodiversity just being the number of species in a place or the number of species globally or the number of species of birds or whatever you would like to say. If it's the number, then it doesn't matter if it's local or whether it's exotic or whether it's natural or whether it's modified by human or whether it's domesticated or whether it's wild. It's just the number of species, right? And so again, because if you're gonna say it's, oh, it matters whether it's uh, exotic versus local, then you're talking about the actual kinds, the actual species that, that are in this, uh, in your set, not about the number, right? 
So more biodiversity is better, even if some of that biodiversity are weeds from Asia, right? Or, you know, rats uh, from Norway. All species are counted equally, and then the question becomes, is more better than fewer? And if that's generally true, then we should be worried because, if, because extinction is ongoing, and so we're getting fewer, right, globally. And this is just uh, one way of representing some of the data. Uh, these are just different groups of um, things with backbones, so like frogs, sharks, mammals, reptiles, fish, and birds. This is all of the species, and the dark, the sort of scarier colors represent the proportion of the species that, are, that we've listed as being globally at risk of extinction. And these are the numbers of species, 10,000 birds, 1,500 snakes and reptiles, and this is the proportion that have been estimated to be at currently globally at risk of extinction. And the, it's, it's about 24% on average, right? So between one in four and one in five species within these groups, and it's even worse for, for plant groups, uh, is at risk of extinction. These are just some pictures of extinct birds and mammals just in Canada. So these are the six, and I, there may be a seventh at the meeting in November. So I sit on a committee that actually talks about this sort of stuff and decides whether something's ex extinct or not. I think we designated another lizard extinct in Canada, but I don't know if it's made it into the you know, sort of official list yet. But we have lost uh, species here in Canada as well. Uh, Eskimo curlew, I think, has been, hasn't been seen since 1963, uh, but it takes 50, we're, I think it's now officially considered extinct, but it takes about 50 years before from last sighting to when you declare something extinct because we find things. Okay, so why might species be, all species contribute to something that we care about? I've, classed them, I've put them into three possible categories here. And again, I'm putting them in the, in the order of, well, no, no particular order, except this is the one that most people think about, is that more biodiversity is good for the e ecological system, right? And ecological systems, broadly, contribute to stuff that are, is good for us. And everyone talks about, you know, clean water, clean air, things like that. So we can, we can really ask this, the question whether that's true. I'm now going to take you, take you, give you between 25 and 30 years of research uh, in two slides on this particular question, whether more biodiversity is better instrumentally via what it does to the ecosystem. These are sort of important background information. Most species are rare globally and in any particular place. Right? So when you, if you walk into a field, you don't see 10% of one species of plant, 10% of the other, 10%, you usually see 90% one, and then the other nine species are at 1%. This is just the way nature is set up. Nothing that we've done, it's just generally the case. Most things are rare, naturally. Uh, I've told you about 25% of species uh, are at risk of extinction. Um, if you actually look at actual extinctions, uh, since 1600 when we started to keep records, we've lost a fair number of species. So global species richness has, in fact, declined uh, quite a bit. Interestingly, most of those extinctions are from islands. When we moved on to the, onto islands, there were species there that only lived on those islands, right? They were globally rare. They were only on that island because that's where they had evolved. We came, they left, right? Because we brought goats, we brought rats, we literally ate them, right? Threw rocks at them because they were stupid and were easy to pick up because they weren't used to predators and then put them on our ships and ate them. We contribute to a lot of extinctions just on islands. What you might not know is that most islands today have more species on them than they did when we arrived in 1600, because we just replaced them with other species, globally common. So what's actually happened, and there's a whole book that, that I've, I'll give you the, called Inheritors of the Earth. What has actually happened is that we have, got, we have caused a lot of 
rare species to go extinct, and we've moved a lot of common species around the Earth. And if you go to a particular place, you don't see a change in the actual species richness at that place. They're just different species. So these are three, and this was, so the first paper came out uh, 2010. The, the lead author, who's Canadian, there were mostly Canadians on the paper, almost, he was almost physically lynched, and he was certainly intellectually lynched for pre pre presenting these data. 2013 was the paper. Mark Vellen is the name. He's in Sherbrooke. And what he did is he took a whole bunch of data. He and a whole bunch of other people took a whole bunch of data where people had monitored how many species there were over time. And they said, OK, how many species were there 50 years ago? How many species are there today at the same place? And this is the sort of diagram where this is zero in the middle. And he, he's a botanist, so he just looked, they were looking at plants. And about half of the time, there were more species later than there were originally, and about half the time there were fewer species. And, but it's centered right on zero. Conservation biologists like, no, no way. Dornelas et al., whole bunch of different groups. She, she did, she, Maria Dornelas, Portuguese, she did the same thing in this ocean and on land. She found exactly the same thing in 2014. Uh, people who looked only at coastal ecosystems, uh, Ilahai 2015, so this all happened, right? Because it was like 13, 14 people got so upset, like 13, 14, 15. These are all published in, in, in the journals that are really hard to get into, you know, where really high impact science. And they found exactly the same thing. In fact, in the marine coastal, the, the tendency is actually that there are more species now than there were fewer. The same species everywhere, but locally they're the same. There hasn't been a, a, a lot of change in areas where there still are species. Now, why is that important? Well, why it's important is because the there, what, is the, what is the actual relationship between how many species you have in a place and the ecosystem function? So if you have a number, if you have a, make a graph like this, remember this is 25 years of research that I'm boiling into a single graph, where you go in and you can have all the species are there, and then you can lose species all the way down to none of them are there. And what you look at is what happens to the function, what happens to the useful function at that plot level. And you can measure function in all sorts of different ways. So what happens as you lose species in a place? Well, what actually happens is nothing for a long time. And then all of a sudden, you lose a lot of the function. So it's not as if every species you lose leads to a decrease in function. It's only when there are very few species there that function collapses. Remember, most species are rare. The ones you're going to lose first are the rare ones. So early loss of the rare species actually doesn't have a huge effect. If you're a conservation biologist, you can, you can say, oh, you can flip this around and say, oh my god, there's a tipping point. At some point, the whole thing falls to pieces. That would be true. So both those things are true. It depends on your perspective. But it's certainly the case that the loss of a few species at a site probably doesn't have an effect, and certainly, uh, or especially, given that those are probably the rare ones that go first. And there's no good evidence that, we're lose, that, that local places have fewer species than Okay, that should all be really controversial and should make you kind of upset. But that's, that is the state of the art for now. So are there other reasons why more all biodiversity is, 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 use, is somehow instrumentally useful? Well, there is an argument for aesthetics. So it may be that the more biodiversity, we, we just like more biodiversity, right? To set aside the fact that it might not be changing, but maybe we, we like more biodiversity. So maybe it actually gives us more pleasure. It's like a, a preference. It's just a preference. Uh, aesthetic value just... As you probably know, uh, it's hard to pin down, but it's, it is, you can think of it as a, as a response to something that, you, that comes in in terms of, you know, through, through one of our five sen senses, uh, that is desirable and common, uh, and maybe even be universal. And this, there's an argument about the cultural Im impact here. So I put green and yellow because when you talk about aesthetic value, it's, you have to be very careful again, right? 
uh, well, are we talking about particular species or are we talking about just variety in general? So we do risk making a category error here if we say that all biodiversity is good, uh, when we mean, well, just the stuff that we like is good. Um, a, environment, a sort of a, a influential environmental ethicist, uh, Russo, has talked about an interesting idea that we actually like rare things. For some reason, we like rare. We, we collect rare stamps. We go to see rare. We people spend a lot of money to see things that they haven't seen. We there may be some feeling of surprise that comes from seeing something that is rare, and that could be an aesthetic response. So if we attend to rare kinds more generally, that would then we're kind of in between this some versus all, because most things are rare, right? So if we're losing the rare things, then we're losing that aesthetic uh, appreciation. But it turns out, if you just look at variety, there actually hasn't been a lot of research on whether we like variety per se. So these are, as you can see, very recent papers. This is from 2016. This is from 2010. This is looking at coral reefs. So Anne Scribault took a lot of pictures of coral reefs in the Mediterranean at different depths. She scored how many species there were, how much variation there was in morphology of the corals. And then she posted them on the web and said, here's a picture. Do you like it? And then she asked what the appreciation score, it's about 1,200 people, as a function of this is morphological variation, but this could just as well be species richness. And indeed, there's a positive relationship, but it's pretty weak. If you, if you think about it, you, not a lot of uh, inf um, This is another uh, uh, study, hard to do the statistics on. This is another study where the more species of plant that they planted out as you're walking into a garden. So they basically put these, they had like, like, uh, like Van Dusen, they had a, a walkway that you'd walk in, and at the end of the walkway, somebody would stand there with a clipboard and say, hey, did you like your walk? You know, it was it pretty or whatever? And they'd score it. And they would change what people saw as they walked in. So whether this is a good uh, experiment or not, they did find that um, the more species they put out, the more people seemed to like, like it as it went by. Uh, but the more species they put out, the more likely they, they were to put one out with a flower. So whether it's, a, whether it's actual variety or whether it's something called the sampling, is not clear. Anyway, point being is that there's pro there might be some, there, there may be aesthetic innate preference for variety and rarity, but not a lot of research. The one that I like, I think the strongest argument for preserving biodiversity is that there's more options. This is a close colleague of mine, Dan Faith, um, who back in 92 made this argument that, that preserving species, all of them, he, he was particularly interested in preserving species that were very different from each other, um, so as much variety as, per, as possible, uh, provides option value ensuring that we may, there may be something there that we may, we may need in the future, even though we don't know it. And this may get at the medicine question. So it's like this idea of the 20 thing, 23 things you didn't know you actually needed or wanted, right? So there's number one. I can see the use for that. This one, I'm not so sure. This is the inflatable pillow tie. So if you, fall asleep, if you fall asleep at your desk. But the idea here being is that we don't really know why we might want to preserve biodiversity, but we better keep some around just in case. So this argument is sort of other things being equal. We should keep more rather than less, because if you have to start to say, well, how much more should we pay per unit, it's pretty hard. So this is a ceteris paribus argument. Um, hard to measure, though. So now I'm going to um, indulge myself by talking a little bit about my own research about how you might measure this relative option value. Right? If, if it's true that we should preserve more variety rather than less, uh, how, might, how could we measure that variety? Because remember, it's about stuff we don't know about. 
right? These are, this, is, this is for the future where we don't have real uses. So to do that, we just want to remind everybody that we're all related, right? So we're all related on a big phylogenetic tree. Everything is related to each other via evolution. Uh, and the cool thing, one thing you can think about is that if the tree of life of, let's say, all mammals, and listen, so I'm now representing all mammals, okay? So with all 5,000 species over here, all across, and the trunk of the tree is behind me. Every year, a year of evolution has gone by, so the tree has grown by one year. So every year, there's 5,000 years of mammal evolution that occurred right now. It's happening right now. They're having babies, mutations, things are going on. So on average, well, truly, you get a year per year of evolution. So every year, the mammal tree gains 5,000 years of evolution. If we lose it, the average mammal species is about 5 million years old. So if we lose a species, we lose a twig off the tree, that twig represents about 5 million years. So that means it's very easy to, to tot up the rate of gain of evolution versus the rate of loss of evolution via, uh, via extinction. Does that kind of analogy make sense, right? It's growing and then it's shrinking via extinction. So the cool thing about that is that different species contribute different amounts to the tree depending on whether the, whether, where they are on the tree. So there's us. We're closely related to chimps. So this is time here. This is the same tree growing through time. So there's us, some chimps. We're both related to the gorillas, and then all of us, we're related to the orangutan, right? That's the way our bit of the family, the family tree of mammals looks like. If we lose the orangutan, orangutans are all endangered, right? Highly endangered. If we lose them, then what happens? We actually lose that whole bit of the tree, right? So all that evolution that is represented by orangutans is gone. If we keep orangutan and we let gorillas go extinct, then we actually lose a lot less because we share a lot of our history with gorillas, and so do chimps. So in, the, so in the sense of evolution giving us variation, that would allow us to rank species in different ways. We would rank species based on where they are on the tree of life. So we would actually pres uh, rather preserve the orangutan than the gorilla, because that's this tree with the orangutan actually has more biodiversity. right? In this way, orangutans would be more valuable than gorillas. Again, that might be controversial to you. So we can do this sort of thing. So here is another representation. These are all the mammals in the world. This is the base of the tree planted in the ground. All the way around the top are all of the mammals. So you are down here. There's Homo sapiens down there. We can take a look at the tree and say, well, which species actually contributes most to that tree? So it's down there. It's way down there. It's way down there. It has no close relatives. It goes back 64 million years to the age of the dinosaurs. In fact, it's the platypus, right? So the platypus. If it were to go extinct, we would lose 64 million years of evolution. Not just 5 million years, which is the average, but 64 million. Uh, the platypus is actually ranked number two, but they're kind of tied. Rank, but number one is the African aardvark. If we lost the African aardvark, we'd lose something on the order of 80 million of evolution. So in some way, the aardvark and the platypus both are worth way more than the human or the orangutan. Orangutan is only about 18 million years, right? So this is for five times. We did it for birds. Same idea, this is, the, this is where the tree starts in the middle. We've just made it so you can show it on, all the way around. These are all 10,000 species of bird. Uh, number one bird, oldest bird in the world, something called the oil bird of South America. Uh, it's called the oil bird because the, the chicks, they eat, they're fruit eaters, they eat these really fatty fruit, and the chicks are so fat, in the old days they would just take the chicks, stick them on a, uh, on a uh, stick, put them in the fire, light them, and they would be a torch. They go around. That's how, fat, that's how fat they were. They live in caves. They're nocturnal. They're basically bats. They literally live in caves. They hunt at night. Hunt at night. They forage at night. Uh, and they're social. 
right? So they're the equivalent of what we would think of as a bat. Very odd. Number two, they're, so in the same way that the, that the platypus and the aardvark are pretty close, the Hoatzin is number, is number also tied as being the most, uh, uh, it's called evolutionary distinctive, but anyway. Um, it's tied for number one. So the Hoatzin is cool because it's the only bird that eats food like a cow. So it actually ruminates like a cow. It's got a great big, pretty fat, it's got a great big gut, and it sits there. And it's, all, it's called the stink bird because it's really stinky, uh, like, kind of like a cow, because it's fermenting its food, right? It's the only bird that does that. The other really cool thing about Hoatzin, and I'm sorry the lights are, are, are a little bit high here, the baby Hoatzins have hands. So watch. Why do they have hands? Because they live in parts of South America where, in sort of mangroves where they often fall in water. And so when they fall in the water, they can use their hands to get back out. They're the only bird born with hands. They lose them, but they've got them. And they, they can fly as they get old. So they're pretty cool, but just because they're cool doesn't mean that they actually contribute options, right, that we wouldn't know about. There's only a single study that I know where people have actually looked for option value, and it's in South uh, Africa. So these are, this is the group of South African um, uh, plants that are found only there. And these guys and had to take, took a look at all the species that lived in, in the Cape, so the South African Cape. Um, and they asked, if, so remember I showed you, you know, as we lose species, what do we lose on the, on the y-axis, right? So what they did is basically they said, if we, I mean, they did it this way, but if we saved species here, let the other ones go extinct, how many useful species would we save? And if we save them randomly, then you get a positive rate. The more species you save, the more useful ones you get. So this useful stuff came from another data set. It's not really right. But this is just the number of useful genera. This is the species you would save. And they said, yep, obviously, the more you save, the more useful ones you get. But if you actually use the tree, the phylogenetic tree, and save the ones first, save the, save the, the, the aardvarks and the platypuses of the plant world, do you get more useful stuff out? And if that's the red line that's, that's just above just of you doing it randomly. So, right, so for any given number of species that you save, this is how many useful ones you'd get randomly. If you use the option value argument, you'd, use, you'd save just a little bit more. Only study I know of, so we need more work. Okay, why uh, is is uh, option value interesting? It, because I, I've said it twice now. Uh, it's one of the things that's really important when you think about option value is that you don't know what the use is going to be, right? So you're saving it just in case. Don Meyer, uh, philo environmental philosopher, says you got to be really careful about that because really what you're doing is you're becoming a hoarder. Right? Every bit of string might be useful, so you put it in the drawer. Well, you know, we know that doesn't get you very far uh, in life. And you also have to assume that things you're saving are actually good for you, not bad for you. Piece of string, okay, it's not going to kill you. But the more biodiversity you save, of course, the more likely you are to save something that's actually not good for you. So it turns out, for instance, after a lot of debate in the literature and a lot of tests, that the more biodiversity you have in an, in, in an area, the more likely you are to have a disease organism. Right? That hurts us because of zoonotics that come in. Right? So uh, you have to be very careful about this, this hoarding art. Uh, how we, remember I showed you these guys about how much money we spent on these guys. Well, how did we do on the, on the option value for these guys? Well, it turns out the California condor was a very good, um, uh, I, good thing to save because there are 10,000 species of bird. It's in the top 100 as being, having no close relative. And if you just look at the ones that are at risk, there's about six or 700. It's actually the fifth. Uh, it gives you the fifth most 
gives you, what, how can I say this? In, in the ranking of how much extra evolution it gives you, it's number, it's, uh, uh, number five. And it, actually, and it actually represents about 34 million years. So on this argument, it's a pretty good idea. Vancouver Island Marmot, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. So there are about 5,300, depends how you count, uh, mammals. It's 5,200th, i.e., it contributes almost nothing to the tree. It's very closely related to the hoary marmot and the Olympic marmot on the Olympic Peninsula and here on the mainland. Uh, and it is the 1,000th, 1,200th most uh, uh, least helpful if you just look at the uh, species at risk. There are only five other species that contribute less that are at risk. And it represents roughly about 2 million years of evolutionary history measured in a particular way, right? So it's the exact opposite. So if you're just thinking about biodiversity in terms of option value measured using evolution, this is not where you should be putting your mind. Okay, so those are the instrumental values. Here's the church part of the talk. What about inherent values? Do species have inherent values? Often, and, and so there's different, I'm not a philosopher, there's different ways of talking about this. Some people make a distinction between intrinsic and inherent. So I'm gonna talk about intrinsic being the general term and inherent being specific right to exist that everything has. All species are valuable because they all have an inherent. Okay, remember I, I gave you that quote from the 2015 uh, paper in the National Post where they talked about uh, uh, the traditional view. This is the key tenant of the traditional view. This comes from the most famous, this is the sort of the beginning of conservation biology. Michael Soule coined, you know, what is conservation biology? He's considered to be the grandfather of conservation biology. He's the one who called it a crisis discipline, et cetera, et cetera. This is his famous um, paper. This is the famous quote from that famous paper about intrinsic value. Biodiversity, but he called it biotic diversity because the word didn't even exist in 1980. Has intrinsic value irrespective of its instrumental or utilitarian value. He's like, okay, leave aside whether it's useful, biodiversity still has value. He calls it a normative postulate, so if there are any philosophers in the room, you can tell me what that means, it's very specific. But people have taken it to mean truth, it's not true, but truth, is the most fundamental. Species have value in themselves, a value that is neither uh, conferred nor revocable. But springing from a species' long evolutionary heritage, so that's good for me because that's what I study, uh, and potential, Maybe, maybe option value, maybe not, because he's saying it's got no, it's not instrumental, it's just potential to keep, continue to evolve, or even from the mere fact of its existence. That's what most conservation biologists, if you scratch the surface, believe, and maybe most of you believe. It's completely irrelevant to biodiversity if it's a number of kinds, right, within a category, because a number doesn't have intrinsic value, right? It has to apply to the kind. So, so it's not about biodiversity, it's about in, each individual species might apply to those constitutive kinds. Does that make sense? Uh, it's often tied up with, with notions of stewardship, right? We have some sort of responsibility to nature. Uh, I mean, I thought, it, I thought there was a, a, a passage in, in, the, in the Bible that talked about stewardship directly. I couldn't find one. People were interpreting some of the idea about dominion and meaning stewardship. So I'm not sure exactly where it comes from, but there seems to be this sense in the West that we are supposed to steward nature. Right? And that's, what, and that's our responsibility. Rousseau, again, points out that you can't use that as an argument for the value of nature because stewardship is something you do for things that are valuable. But you have to show that they're valuable first. Otherwise, it's completely certain. You can't say, oh, nature is valuable because we're supposed to steward it. Right? Garbage, if you, someone told you to steward it, doesn't make the garbage valuable. You have, to, you have to start from why it's valuable and then move up. If we justify our obligations of stewardship by reference to the value of that which is cared for, we cannot also explain the value 
that what we're caring for by pointing to the duties of stewardship. So you got to separate those two, right? Okay. So it's putting the cart before the horse. There are three flavors of this intrinsic value. There's soulés, one that my students tend to have. Uh, there's one that's a sort of a, a weaker form of this one. And then there's the one that, very surprisingly, some of the more recent um, discussions have fallen on. So all species, so that's green, right? All species have inherent rights to exist. Individuals, all living things, the individuals, have, uh, we have obligations to, versus we have obligations to only some, sort of, so only some subset of the natural world, and in particular the ones that can suffer. So biocentric holists, what's called, this is the central tenant. All of the books, I didn't bring, I thought I'd maybe bringing a bag of books, you know, that I could show you that I've been, you know, you can look at them afterwards, but I'm on my bike, so I didn't. But all of the recent writing say there is no good philosophical underpinning uh, or support for the idea that species are valuable for their own sake because it's a category error. Species are essentially figments of our imagination. There's just a lineage. Why not, you know? The species is nothing special relative to a genus or a family or a population, right? You can walk up and down the evolutionary tree anywhere you want. You can just slice it and you can call it. Darwin called species nothing more than what a, what a well-trained taxonomist decides to call the species. So you, you can't give value to something that doesn't even exist, really. So Rousseau, Meyer, uh, Jonathan Newman, he's a biologist at Guelph, but he works with philosophers. All argue that it's very difficult to ascribe particular rights to the kinds, right? You can only apply them to the individuals that make up those kinds. So you're, you're committing on category error. Only individual organisms have interests. Ascribing a property of the part to the whole is a category mistake. My students hate this. Hate this idea. This species mutinies them, right? And I ask them, I say, well, what, what's so special? Like, you know, you've taken evolution class. What are you talking about? It doesn't matter. They just, their brains clam up when, when this comes up because it's a central tenet of conservation biology, right? Michael Soule said it. It must be true. Uh, there's this weaker form, which is that, okay, all right, okay, we made a category error. We're all biologists. We're not philosophers. Okay. How about we just have obligations to living things? Well, if you, if you sort of cut off the idea that species have value at the legs philosophically, then it's very difficult to mount an argument that living things are worthy of inher have inherent rights to which we have obligations. Clearly, at the limit, it's ridiculous because we eat them, right? So there's got to, you know, so you got like, to get around that somehow. Uh, <clears throat> But why is, why, is the, why is living, where does, I mean, it can come from received wisdom. The Bible can tell you that life is good or, you know, something that's something special about living things. But it's hard to philosophically come up with a reason why life is good. It's special, right? So there's, there's, there's some people say, oh, well, because of evolution, there's this. Uh, but evolved interests, they have interests because they've evolved and they're living. But we've got lots of evolved interests that are pretty nasty. And so you, you can't say that just because it's an evolved interest. Don't worry, I'm almost done. This is like the penultimate slide. Newman et al. with the philosophers 2017 suggests that the only obligations we have to individuals are the, the ones that, have, uh, that are sentient because they can suffer. That's how we treat humans. That's how we should be treating uh, other individuals. So that the strongest philosophical, philosophical argument to conserve biodiversity is sentient, which means that would support some commonplace preferences that we have, that we, that to, that we prefer whales and bears and mammals generally, uh, more e that they are actually more equal than other living things. And then we get into a really inf interesting discussion, empirical discussion, about whether fish feel pain. So biodiversity is important insofar as it supports the welfare of sentient individuals. So 
where we go from here. Where we go from here is that you invite Kai Chan to talk about relational value, because this is a very, very different idea. This is about species, this is about individuals and species, and this is about us and place and what's there now, and there's some philosophical arguments. That, but I'd rather, I would, if you invite Kai, I would like to come back, because I would like to hear, <laughs> hear him talk. So this is still being formalized, uh, and this is where we're at. This is where the thinking is. Has. So I leave you with that question, which bear? Thank you, Thank you.